Hi there, I'm Nicholas Cheffings and I'm a senior counsel and former global chair of Hogan Lovells. I work with a number of social mobility charities, particularly Prime Commitment and Making the Leap. And I'm an independent member of the Council of the University of Exeter. And I'm enjoying having a conversation with Greg Rice. And if you want to take your communication skills to the next level, you really need to be listening to the Art of Communication podcast with Greg Rice. Welcome to the Art of Communication, where entrepreneurs learn to grow their business more effectively through mastering their ability to connect to others. Whether you're looking to increase revenue, widen your network, or just getting others to buy into your vision, we'll help you dramatically transform your business and life by communicating more effectively, improving your leadership skills, and reinvesting time back into your family. You're only one good conversation away from transforming your business and your life. So let's start the conversation with your host, Greg Rice. Hey guys, today I got to sit down with Nicholas Schaefings. Nicholas is a part, a past partner and global chair of Hogan Lovells, which is a global elite law firm. He's also deeply passionate about driving greater social mobility for disadvantaged populations. So we talked about a lot of things. We dove into his approach to leadership and how he had to learn to adapt that um, and leading teams from a lot of different regions and cultures and, and how you need to be flexible in your leadership and your communication styles. We also talked about why he is so passionate about social mobility and how we can all work together to drive more opportunities for disadvantaged populations. So Nicholas's passion for true leadership and social mobility really shine through brightly in this interview, and he shares some really powerful thoughts on how we can all be better leaders, but also really make a difference. Nicholas, welcome to the Art of Communication podcast. Really excited to have you on today. Thank you so much, Greg. I'm delighted to be on, and thank you for inviting me. Absolutely. I think you have a ton of insight to share around both global leadership and communicating to different cultures in different ways, but then also clearly around diversity and inclusion, the importance of that and, and how to achieve that. But I'd love to just start off by hearing a little bit about your background and kind of how you came to become a, a global chair of one of the world's leading law firms. Very happy to share that, Greg. And my short summary, I guess, would be if you um, had suggested to me when I was a teenager that the idea that I might be the global chair of one of the leading law firms in the world, um, I'm not sure what my response would would have been, but it certainly wouldn't have been. Okay, fine. Um, (laughs) That was a a long way from my expectations. Um, I was uh, born in a um, small village in northeast Lincolnshire, a largely farming community. Um, born in uh, council public housing, um, fantastically supportive parents. Um, they had not had the opportunity to join the professions. I knew nothing about the professions. The closest I got to them was when I went to the opticians or the dentist. And um, I got to the age of about 15 and I thought to myself, I kind of don't want to do what I see everybody else doing, which was largely going into farming or manual labor or working for the council or maybe joining the armed forces. And then I thought, so what am I going to do? And my father said to me, well, you could join one of the professions. Really, that was about as much as both of us knew about it conceptually, really. So I thought to myself, okay, so what are they? Um, I could be a vet, but then I'm allergic to dogs, so that's probably not going to work. I could be an accountant, but additional maths is the one exam that I'm really struggling with, so that's probably not (laughs) going to work either. Then I thought, I really did think I could be a doctor, but then I learned that in the UK it takes about seven years to get anywhere and that was way too long to have to wait so that really only left 
uh, only really left the law. So I just decided that that's what I was going to do. Didn't know a lawyer. The only time I'd been near a lawyer was on a school trip. I needed a passport, so I needed somebody to sign that little photograph for me. Uh, didn't really have any careers advice at school, so just kind of got on um, with the exams, got the exams I needed, and went to the University of Leicester, which was one of the leading uh, law faculties at the time. And ironically, I did that, uh, chose that one particularly, because it was one of the few universities at the time which was doing a degree uh, which involved European law. Mm. And that was very uh, incipient, really, in, in UK terms at the time. Uh, the irony is obviously double in the sense that um, we're about to walk away from it all. Um, and because I pretty much spent my entire professional career without practicing any European law at all. But um, <laughs> it, was, it was a good start. And then I was looking at what to, what to do and uh, where to qualify, where to practice. And I didn't see myself as being in one of the kind of big city law firms, magic law firms, you know, the equivalents of the white shoe law firms in the US, et cetera, just didn't see me in that. My vision of pinstripe suits and red braces um, hmm. or suspenders as, uh, as it's called in North America, uh, it just wasn't for me. So what I actually did was I ended up going in, in-house, um, joined what was then the National Coal Board, which was the legal department of the coal industry in the UK, which was huge at the time. Got amazing experience. Um, again, fortuitously and coincidentally, there was a year-long um, industrial strike, um, which just meant I got the kind of experience that you had to wait for seven, eight years in private practice to get. Mm-hmm. That was an opening, uh, and then the industry was privatised. I moved into private practice, joined a firm called Navarro Nathanson, uh, which was uh, very focused uh, on real estate, which is what I then started to focus down into. Uh, and then I was approached to lead a team at uh, what was then uh, Level White Durrant, which became Lovells and subsequently uh, 10 years ago became Hogan Lovells, um, had various management type roles. Uh, and, and then uh, in uh, 2012, uh, having been a member of the uh, governing board of the firm, uh, I was elected as the global chair. Uh, for a three-year term, which was then renewed once. And that kind of just happened, really. It wasn't something I um, had this kind of a burning ambition to be. It's not something that I sought out as a career path. Um, I think it's typical of uh, quite a few people who move into leadership positions that uh, you adapt to your circumstances, you prove to be successful, and people say, have you thought about doing X? And you often haven't, but now they mention it to you, it seems like quite a good idea. So um, that's kind of kind of how it played out, really. And as I say, uh, that wasn't the grand plan when I was 15. Didn't really have one when I was 14. But. Yeah, no, that's a really interesting journey, especially from kind of uh, when you were a youth and had no visibility into being a lawyer all the way to yes. kind of the leadership of, of a global firm. That's pretty amazing. So tell me a little bit about your just overall approach to leadership. I think for me, uh, the guiding tenet really is to lead by example. I I don't think you can sensibly ask anybody to do anything or to behave in a way that is inconsistent with the way that you do things or behave. Um, You can, but I think you lose credibility. Uh, And so the kind of secondary element of that for me really is about integrity uh, and honesty uh, and, and being real and a part of that is transparency, and obviously in senior leadership positions, there's sometimes limits the amount of transparency that, that one can share. 
for obvious reasons, but I think it's all about building, for me, it's about building trust. There are obviously lots of different ways of doing this, but, that, but that's important for me. Uh, and then getting uh, that balance of, of confidence uh, in, in your ability uh, and your ability to make decisions, but humility in the way that one goes about it and the recognition that you're not always going to get it right. And part of that, I think, is, is consulting, um, not over-consulting. So consulting with diverse views and diverse opinions, but obviously being able to stand back and say, OK, I need to make a decision and this is it. And not everybody's going to be happy, but I'm satisfied it's the right decision and I'll explain why. Um, and in terms of team, I would say that my approach is to, to look to empower people and to support them. Um, to be empathetic in, in dealing with them, but at the same time firm. And I think that, for me, has enabled me to get to a place where, so kind of, I hesitate to say this because it feels as though other people should be saying it rather than me, but that you build a, a sense of respect amongst people. And, and when, you know, when things go wrong, you don't have to kind of shout and scream at people. Frankly, you know, you just have to look at them. They know it's gone wrong. They know that you're not happy with them. But the reality is, they're feeling pretty grim about it themselves and probably worse than you are. So let's focus upon why it went wrong, what we're going to do about it and what we're going to learn from it. So it's it's that combination of things. And then I guess the last piece of that for me personally is uh, I'm a strong believer in the use of humour as part of teamwork, as part of diffusing difficult situations and, and all of that really. Sure, for sure. Now, how does that change the way that you need to approach leadership when you're talking about leading folks from different cultures and different regions of the world? Yeah. Well, that's a great point. Um, and actually, let me pick up my last point, use of humor. Um, <laughs> that's a really good example. I mean, you know only too well from your experiences that um, you know the Brits are pretty good at irony and sarcasm, um, which plays pretty well with most Brits, not all of them, um, <laughs> but doesn't play as well in, in quite a few other cultures. So. You know, whilst humour can be a great way of breaking ice and bringing people on board and, and building relationships, if you get it wrong, if you misjudge it because you don't understand the culture, it can be devastating, actually. You can really get things badly wrong. And I think that's the point, actually, about communication. You need to understand that cultural dimension and how people's mindsets differ. And there are lots of examples working at Hogan Levels that I can think of over my years it, you know, offices in, in pretty much um, 50 different locations. And, and again, you will be very aware of this. The Brits tend to have a reputation for not being very direct, saying things which imply that they're in complete agreement and actually what they're really thinking is that was just a rubbish idea. Why did you even think about suggesting it? But, you know, they'll say something like, oh, that's an interesting point. And yet, you know, the, the, the Americans, the, the North Americans, the Germans, the Dutch, you know, much more direct, much more straightforward. And so I think that's important. You, you know, you have to adapt to that particular um, culture, that particular environment. Great example, if you've got time for it. When um, I was involved in um, our partnership admission processes at the firm, uh, which is bringing in our associates into partnership, we... Um, put on a series of programs and we used to bring some actors in. So we started this, this first year, bringing some actors in to play particular roles. And I remember mm. first year we decided that those of us who were running the program would participate in it ourselves. And so we did, and I did mine, and a couple of people did theirs. Any feedback, Dutch guy said to me, I thought yours was shocking. 
And I said, that's interesting, being slightly offended, but, you know, pretending not to be. Um, and he said to me, because she simply wouldn't have had a clue what kind of message you were trying to deliver. Mm. And I reflected on it and then instantly said, not out of revenge, but because I thought it, I said, thanks for that. Uh, I thought yours was shocking too. And he said, why is that then? I said, because if she was British, she would have known exactly what the message was and she'd be leaving that day. <laughs> um, and we were both right. The way I was delivering the message to a successful associate who'd made a mistake, worked in the UK, didn't work in, in Amsterdam. It wouldn't have worked in Germany. And, and you really need to learn that very early on when you're dealing with different cultures and global, global audiences. Yeah, I think it's critical for leadership and really any communication to really focus on understanding the person you're communicating with. And I've Absolutely. spoken about this before, but it's the speaker's responsibility to make sure that they get across what they want to get across, not necessarily the listener's responsibility to understand what you're trying to say, you know? Key point. Yeah, and I think a great way to do that is to, to travel and be in those locations as much as you can to get to know the people and the culture and, and just get the vibe of the place. Yeah, and it's, you know, they can be very small things and just picking up language differences as well. I remember shortly after the firm came together as Hogan Lovells, uh, some partner in London came up to me and said, I've put a really huge amount of effort into this. And I got an email from a partner in the US telling me it was quite good. Now, <laughs> I, I knew, having learned, that quite good meant this is really good. Thank you. Mm hmm Whereas quite good used in many contexts in the UK means it's kind of okay, but you could have done better. Oh, yeah. And that is a very, very simple misunderstanding. And obviously email, email enhances the prospect of misunderstanding. Yeah, it communicates volumes to the receiver though, right? If you think I did an amazing job or oh, I could have done better, you know, that's a completely <laughs> different world. Absolutely. Very interesting. Okay, switch topics a little bit. Tell me a bit about the great work that you're doing at Prime Commitment Limited and Making the Leap and, and all the work you're doing around diversity and mobility. Thanks, Greg. Um, so I've been working on diversity and inclusion equality for a long time now, and in latter years, very much with a focus upon social mobility, and I'm happy to explain why uh, in, in due course. But the two organizations I'm particularly attached to at the moment are, as you say, Prime Commitment, which was established just under 10 years ago. Uh, and it's an alliance of 60 plus UK law firms um, who made a series of well, nine commitments to promote wider access to their firms um, by offering um, state school year nine, year 13, so kind of 14 to 17 year old students from socioeconomically disadvantaged backgrounds, um, the opportunity for work experiences. And the commitment is that they'll offer at least 50% of the number of training contracts that they have available to, to these students. Uh, minimum 30, 35 hours um, contact time. And lots of other support around um, training, um, careers advice, um, developing key skills, etc. What I really like about it, obviously apart from the, the good it does and the impact that it has on these individual students, is that it's just a fantastic example of how firms which the rest of the time are so competitive for staff for clients for high profile jobs etc etc are so willing to collaborate and work together for a greater good and, and the willingness of people to 
share best practice and to support and encourage each other's each other and work together is, is really really powerful and, and making a big difference very proud to be part of that and and fortunate to have been its chair for a few years now um, the other one uh, that you mentioned was making the leap which is a london-based uh, social mobility charity uh, which was set up about 26 years ago by a hugely inspiring founding CEO called uh, Tunde Banjoko, OBE. Um, and that essentially, same principle to raise aspirations, to give opportunities and, and to change lives really for, uh, for people whose birthplace meant that they had less prospect of, of all of that. And uh, over the last decade, probably helped over 55,000 students and just to give you a flavor of that, uh, in excess of 70% of them have found a job opportunity within six months of engagement with making the leap. Um, so again, just a really good charity and there are lots of things to admire about that one, but one that particularly resonates with me is that it's very much a, a black-led charity, um, which is you know, sadly all too rare, um, in, in, certainly in the UK and I think probably in um, North America too. Um, and, and a substantial part of the elite, the executive team are um, black, and there's a very diverse uh, trustee board. So it's a really impressive example of what can be done and, and the differences that can be made, and you know, lots of good examples of that over time. So obviously a clear focus and passion around social mobility for you. Tell me where that comes from and why that's so important to you. Fundamentally, it's about believing in equality of opportunity. Uh, and the way I, I looked at this over uh, years is that, you know, ironically, I mean, the one thing over which not a single person in the world has any choice is the person to whom and where we are born. Mm -hmm. It just kind of happens to us and um, it can't be right that that factor over which we have had no input, no control, etc., can dictate a substantial part or possibly all of our future and so for me my journey started like so many people around uh, gender equality uh, and, and then moved through race equality uh, and then uh, social mobility was really for me bringing all of that together um, because you know sadly it's color gender sexual orientation religion neutral and none of those um, mean you're excluded from having a socioeconomically disadvantaged background. And so by helping people uh, in that environment to raise aspirations, get opportunities and, and succeed in, in the business world, um, you're also aiding one of those other characteristics. So for me, it, it was a um, a way of achieving um, a lot of the benefits that I'd been looking to achieve in the different sectionalized areas that I'd previously been focused upon. Yeah, I think it's a really powerful area and a really fascinating topic. I know in the U.S., for example, that you know your zip code is so highly correlated with like your out the success you have in your life and the income that you make, right? So outside of race, gender, anything else, it's about your zip code, and it, it shouldn't be that way, you know. Okay. Absolutely. And, you know, you and I have spoken in the past about the fact that 
you know, there are some hugely talented individuals mm-hmm. with that zip code. And because they're in that zip code, they're not going to get the opportunity. Uh, and, you know, that just cannot be right. And, and we have to collectively as a society, but so long as um, it's not being done by governments or institutions, those of us with a passion and, and the ability to try and make some difference need to be doing so. Yeah, I mean, I wonder how much talent and beauty the world is missing out on because those folks never really get to uh, live or really even understand or approach their potential, you know? I think it's massive. I, I really do. And, you know, for me, I think the way I look at it is that, you know, success, however you define that, really is a is a mix of nature and nurture. Uh, and I think that, you know, if you're in the right zip code, get both mm-hmm. um and if you're in the wrong zip code you probably you know you could well have the nature but you're probably not going to get the nurturing mm-hmm. um i think it was i think it was adam smith who kind of way back by definition 18th century i think said that so often the difference in in talent and achievement was not about your genes but about um habit custom and opportunity and i think you know that frankly, hasn't changed, which is extraordinary when you think about it. Um, and if, you, if you're if you in the wrong zip code, or as we would say, postcode over here, you know, there's a real probability that you're not going to be surrounded by the positive role modeling, the educational opportunities, the business working opportunities. And so you miss out on that nurturing and you miss out on that chance to develop and showcase your talent. But what you, if the key thing for me is that what you do often have is the, not just the talent, but the, the resilience and the determination and the ambition and the hard work. So if you can match those to opportunity, then you're in a fantastic place. For sure, for sure. So what are the keys then to driving greater social mobility? Wow, big question. Um, <laughs> I, could spend, I could spend quite a lot of time, I think, talking about our education system. Um, I'll confine myself to a a basic proposition which is for me you know whilst there are all sorts of flaws uh, in our education system one of the things that i've increasingly struggled with is you know in this world of instant access to information and knowledge we still certainly here um in the uk spend a huge amount of time teaching children about everything they could conceivably want to know about um, the wives of henry the (laughs) eighth and yet we don't teach them the soft skills that they need i mean simply simply sometimes just to survive in society let alone to make um a a success uh, in whatever terms one judges that of of society or the workplace so i think i think our education system could do so much more uh, to equip people and to equip young people for the world of adulthood and i think that would make a huge difference frankly um, beyond that, I think it's about it's about outreach. Um, I think those of us with the ability to make opportunity available have to get out there and get into those zip codes, those postcodes. Mm-hmm. Um, because if we don't, it, it's probably not going to happen. It's going to be you know the exceptional case. Um, but equally, I don't think social mobility. Um, you know, if I put it into a law firm context and, and the UK, it, it shouldn't just be taking somebody from um, a disadvantaged part of Northwest England and giving them a fantastic job in a big city law firm. And that's great for them. It's great for the big city law firm, but it's not great for the 
part of northwest England that they've just come from. Mm-hmm. So it's very much a question of, of, of business engaging with with children, giving them the opportunity and the access, and and, and looking at, at them for their own merits, for the diversity that they can they can bring to business. You know, there's so many studies about diverse businesses being better businesses, and I think this is part of that process. Yeah, indeed, indeed. I, I assume another big part of it, especially as you're thinking about like, uh, you know, say getting out of college or getting out of whatever education you're going through and getting into the career side of things is the network, right? Being able to connect with people in who are succeeding in the space that you want to be in that can help you to take those steps, understand what it takes, make other connections for you and, and all those things. And if you're coming from an underprivileged background, you likely don't have that network. That's absolutely true. I think that's one of the biggest challenges. <clears throat> I remember a few years ago at Hogan Lovells, we looked at our recruitment for lawyers and, and the in, initial process of bringing potential uh, future lawyers into it. And we realized that actually we could fill all of our available places by offering opportunities to the children of our best friends, clients, <laughs> and ourselves. And, and that would be very easy, and we have a good talent pool. But A, it would be a hugely limited talent pool because mm-hmm. to continue the analogy, we'd be fishing in a very, very small pool. Um, but B, it was, it was just excluding all of the people um, that you've just mentioned. And the reason was that they had nobody to open a door for them. Um, so we decided that we were not going to do that. And we said we no to every request which was quite a bold thing to do at the time. But, you know, to your point, I mean, we all need those kind of connections. We need um, people to say good things about us. We need people to open doors for us. And, you know, there are very few people out there who don't need somebody to at least show them the door, if not open it for them. And, you know, for me, I think that the only way for uh, people without any of that to, to overcome that disadvantage is one, like, one the moment they get access to just milk it for all it's worth and just ask the questions and ask ask the favors and not don't be too proud or too embarrassed to say can you help me with or can you introduce me to or neutralize it by saying you know do you know anybody who could help me with this the answer might be well yes of course i can why didn't you ask before and i think once you start making those connections that snowball effect starts to happen and it rolls and it gets bigger and bigger and you and you build your network it takes time and it's not as easy but that's that's my one kind of piece of advice never never be too proud or nervous or whatever it is to just ask that basic question if you don't ask uh, you'll never know what the answer might have been and i think related to that is you have to have the courage to reach out right you might have to reach out to 100 people 99 of them might say no but you have to keep yes. reaching out because somebody will say yes at some point and, and they'll see your potential. Yeah, that's exactly right. And that comes to that resilience piece. And uh, just Absolutely. to keep going because you know you, you'll get there in the end. Uh, um, and I remember listening to one of your podcasts with Funke Abimola, who gave you know a very potent uh, description of precisely that and all the job applications she had made before she finally cracked one that mm-hmm. set her on her journey. And you know the rest is history, so to speak. Yeah. Very good example. She was incredibly resourceful and tenacious. Yes, absolutely. Pretty amazing. Was was and, st- was and still is. Yeah, indeed. <laughs> Why she's so successful. Exactly right. So uh, curious your thoughts on the role of unconscious bias 
and what it plays and and how it plays into limiting social mobility? I think it plays a very significant amount. Um, I, I think it can manifest itself in all sorts of ways. And I think most of it um, is benign in that people are not actively discriminating, although clearly sometimes they are. And this applies across the spectrum and not just to social mobility, obviously. But, you know, I mean, I've heard, um, not, at, not at my firm, but, you know, I've heard a senior partner of a law firm say that he would never hire somebody who came for an interview wearing brown shoes. <laughs> I mean, how absurd is that? Yeah. Now, that, you know, however you try and explain it, ultimately, I think that's unconscious bias because, you know, somewhere in, in that person's childhood or upbringing, uh, the mantra has been, you know, never wear brown in town. And therefore, it just shows a person who is ill-equipped to succeed in big city law in London. Because if you, why would you wear brown shoes? All it shows is somebody who either um, has a strong personality and is not faced by any of this stuff, or somebody who has never been told this bizarre rule about don't wear brown in town. Um, accents, another good example, which are often associated with areas which people assume are socioeconomically disadvantaged and therefore people are not going to be as smart or bright. Um, that ability to you know, do the cocktail um, round, etc. You know, if you've come from a certain background, you don't have necessarily that presence. Mm -hmm. And therefore, people look at you and think, well, this person is not going to be able to market. I'm not going to be able to put this person in front of my client. The answer might be possibly not at the moment, or if you choose the right client, they might get on really, really well because they'll have something in common. But actually, those things are, are things you can help people with. But, you know, this uh, unconscious bias training has become quite trendy. And I think that's great, and I'm very much in favor of it, but it absolutely has to be followed up by action. There's no point just showing people that they're unconsciously biased and then letting them carry on. You know, you have to, you have, to have interventions to make any difference. I've had conversations with folks who almost have talked about that. Once you make them aware of it, that's great, but then they just use it as an excuse. Like, oh, I can't help it. I'm unconsciously biased, right? There's nothing I can do about it. So absolutely. I'm going to let myself off the hook. Um, and you certainly can't do that. <laughs> you, def you definitely can't do that. And, and leadership, therefore, needs to make sure that people are accountable for these unconscious biases. For sure. um, and, they, and they're called out and challenged. So just a couple more questions I'd like to ask everybody who I have on the show. The okay. first is around the power of conversation. So I'm a big believer that um, a single conversation can really change your life. And I always like to ask the guests on my show if they can point to a conversation in their lives that has had a significant impact on the direction that they ended up taking. That's a brilliant question. Uh, I'm, if I'm going to cheat and give you two, one is from personal um, reflection. When I was very young, I just gave up on something, um, got a bit sulky and grumpy. And my father said to me, never let your mother know she bred a quitter. <laughs> and ever since then, I've had this determination and resolve not to give up, which can be a bit challenging when you're putting together furniture. But, you know, apart from that, it served me very well. <laughs> um, in, a, in a professional context, it was a conversation many years ago with somebody um, about a particular female associate. And uh, she said to me, do you think she wants to become a partner and I said no and she said why not and I said because I don't she's never mentioned it um, and I was mentally comparing with the um, male in the team who'd been all over me like a rash asking me 
what he had to do to become a partner, et cetera, et cetera. And she said, um, oh, okay, have you ever asked her? I said, no. She said, you know, we're friends. I said, yeah. She said, she wants to be a partner. We talk about it quite a lot. Mm. And it was at that mo moment, having throughout my career been surrounded by very, very successful female lawyers, um, and therefore not being attuned to the idea that to become a successful female lawyer might be more of a challenge than for a man, Mm -hmm. that there was this fundamental a fundamental difference to generalize and that sometimes you know men were often men were much more forceful and demanding and and women worked on the basis that if they were successful and good at their job then they didn't have to ask for things it would just naturally follow um and that really was a, a really important moment for me in terms of gender equality and and diversity and inclusion generally but also in the importance of not just hearing what people are saying, but hearing what they're not saying. For sure, for sure. And kind of great job by you and humbling yourself to that and not just moving forward with, well, you know, I, that doesn't make any sense, right? Because some folks will say that, well, she doesn't ask me, she doesn't want it. Like, regardless of what you say, she needs to ask me about it. So, but you kind of realized the fact that you were looking at it the wrong way um, and, you know, acted accordingly. So that's awesome. Absolutely. The second question, as you think about all you've accomplished so far, if there is a communication challenge that you could have had that would have made it all a lot easier for you, what would that have been? I, I think the, the one for me is that I, like, like so many people, sometimes you are pretty confident about what you should do, mm -hmm. but it's quite nice to get a second opinion from somebody. Mm -hmm. and, and for quite a long time, I had a you know, small group of people that I would get second opinions from. And it was quite late in the day that I realized that they always agreed with me. And at that moment, I realized that I'd been completely wasting their time and mine. I mean, there was no point in asking them for an opinion because they were basically going to agree with me. That's not because, you know, they were <laughs> with me because they didn't want to upset me. It's because they thought like me. And it would have been so much more useful so much earlier in my career if I'd started asking people who I kind of anticipated would disagree with me for a second opinion. Um, because I still might end up, end, end up making the same decision, but I would have known that there were people out there who were going to think I'd got the wrong decision. So either I would communicate the decision differently or I would socialize it with people before it landed. But whilst not having those conversations, I was kind of ignorant of this completely different perspective. And, you know, that's now a fundamental part of the way I, I go about things. But it would have been useful to have learned that kind of 20 years earlier. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, you need a diversity of opinion um, to get to the best place. And especially if you're in a leadership role, sometimes I think you don't get it unless you specifically seek it out. Uh, correct. Correct. Uh, and then, you know, certain leaders seek it out and they still don't hear it because people are frightened of saying the wrong thing or mm -hmm. know that their best option is to agree rather than to risk upsetting the boss. Very true. Very true. So last question for you, who is the best communicator that you know? And you don't have to know them personally. You could just know of them. I think I'm going to come up with an answer that you will have heard many times. Um, and I have met this person and um, it's Bill, Bill Clinton. Mm -hmm. So this is not about uh, politics, um, but 
so I've had a conversation with him. I've introduced him to a very large audience and I've sat in a very large audience listening to him. And he, he to me, has a way of making an emotional connection with people, both, both in an individual conversation when he gives you the impression that he's actually listening to you and he cares, and in addressing a, a large room. It, it, it's almost as though he is talking to you rather than to an anonymous sea of faces. And he just has a way of of telling his stories, which almost leave you with this sense that you were in the room with him when he was talking to the president of Israel about something really challenging. Um, so that, that, you know, that's for, for me, I mean, there's some great examples, but he was, when I met him and, and saw that, it was as impressive as I had been led to believe, really. Very interesting. Um, is that a, is that a, is that a British very interesting or <laughs> no something I've actually popped up on my screen that caused ah. me to um, hesitate because I was it was something surprising so I apologize about that but no that was <laughs> it was actually a us very interesting I have gotten a um, response Bill Clinton before um, yeah. and I haven't had the chance to meet him although I'd love to but I understand from anybody who has spent time with him that um, you do feel like you're the only person in the world kind of when you're talking to him. And I strive to be able to get to that point myself, or at least in that direction, right, where I can have that kind of focus on somebody to make them feel that way. But also, so from my point of view, I'm really understanding them at the deepest level. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. So, so final question for you, where can folks find you, see what you're up to, learn more about the great nonprofits that you're working for? Great. So. Uh... Let me just give you the websites because I think in terms of the work we're doing, um, primecommitment.co.uk and makingtheleap.org.uk are great resources and some really good examples of some of the things that we've been talking about. In terms of connecting with me, probably the best way is through LinkedIn. Um, Nicholas Cheffings, I think I'm the only one on there with that name. So that would be the way to get hold of me. Happy to hear from anybody. Great, great. And the, the nonprofits that you're working with, are they primarily just in the UK or are they doing work outside the UK as well? Uh, they're primarily in the UK. Got it. Okay, good to know. So UK listeners can definitely look into them um, and check them out. So I just want to thank you for taking the time today. I think it was great to get your perspective on leading across a variety of different cultures and regions, on the importance of social mobility and kind of a really interesting conversation on how we can hopefully reduce it, you know, and how I think it takes a little bit of everybody, especially those in leadership roles to overcome some of the biases and seek out that talent in those places where they might not realize that it is today. Absolutely. Great. Thank you for inviting me. Great conversation. I've enjoyed it. Absolutely. Thank you. Don't let the momentum stop now. Continue your path towards connecting at another level by joining the communication nation. We'll be discussing today's topics as well as more real-world solutions to transforming your life personally and professionally at facebook.com slash groups slash join the communication nation. Remember, you're only one good conversation away from transforming your business and life. And that conversation starts right here on The Art of Communication.